Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. What we're going to do tonight is start the book of Hebrews. A couple of reasons for it. One of the reasons is things sort of sweep through the Messianic community. And one of the things that's going on right now is questioning the authenticity and validity of the New Testament and questioning who the Messiah is. So one of the things I'm going to do as we go through Hebrews is talk about what are Messianic scriptures from the Tanakh and what aren't. Because whoever wrote Hebrews, and I personally think it was Paul, but you don't have to, uses some Old Testament text as messianic proof text. And one of the questions is, how did he pick those? Where did they come from? As last time, I am still using an outline written by a guy by the name of James Trim. As I told you the last time I did this, and I will tell you again, James Trim is controversial. He gets himself in trouble on the internet all the time. You can Google James Trim and you'll find half a dozen websites just explaining how he's the scum of the earth. You'll find other websites that think he's pretty good. I've seen him once, way back before we started the congregation, and he seemed like a reasonable guy. I have read his outline, and I find it perfectly sound. So if you run across somebody who thinks James Trim is the scum of the earth and you happen to buy into that, that's okay. This outline, I think, is pretty good. But I I do want to sort of give you that up front so that you know where I'm coming from. So the first question is, who's it written to? And your first clue is the name of the book, which is Hebrews. I'll start with verse 1 here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Whoever wrote this is talking about God speaking to our fathers by the prophets, which indicates that the one who is writing this is a Jew, and he's writing to other Jews. Trim's perspective, which again I find fairly persuasive but it isn't critical, is that he may be writing to Essenes or Ebionites. Essenes were a separatist sect of Judaism that lived on the other side of the Jordan and they were very conservative is I guess the way we should put it. They are the ones who were the keepers of what became the Dead Sea Scrolls. Trim's opinion is that John may have been raised by the Essenes. We're talking about John the Baptist. The Essenes were apparently very anti-evangelical. In other words, they were a very closed community and they didn't spread the word. In other words, they were themselves an island to themselves and kept to themselves. So when John started his baptism at the Jordan and his inviting people out, Trim speculates that he may have been asked to leave. It is without doubt that John had a significant following of his own, and that lasted well into the book of Acts. Because if you go to, I believe it's Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, you have some guys that show up, and Paul finds them, and he says, what baptism were you baptized with? We were baptized with the baptism of John. And again, according to Trim, there is still a sect that follows John 
or there was when this was written back in 97, which was before the war, there is still a sect of those who follow John in either Iran or Iraq. You have this major sect, if you will, that follows John. The question then becomes, who is this guy, Yeshua? According to Trim, the opinion in the Ebionite community was what he calls a low Christology, which is to say Yeshua was smacked by an angel and was speaking the word of God and going out and doing miracles and all that kind of stuff, but he was not God. So one of the reasons that this letter is written is to present what, again, Trim calls a high Christology, which is to say presenting Yeshua as God. And that, in fact, is the subject of the letter. And as I say, Trim's idea is that it is written to this group of either Ebionites or Essenes who have a different perspective of who this guy Yeshua was. The, the study of Christology in Christianity is who was this guy Yeshua? The way he is using those two terms is a low Christology is Yeshua is simply a super prophet, but he is not God. He is simply somebody that God used for his ministry. The Christology that's being taught in the book of Hebrews is no, this man is the son of God and he is God himself. That's the purpose of the letter is it's written to a group of Jews of some kind explaining who this Christ is. And as we go through it, I'll give you some of Trim's ideas of why he thinks that the target audience were Essenes or Ebionites. He also believes Paul wrote it. And I agree for what it's worth. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. And his explanation of why it is unsigned is because all Paul's letters were essentially banned by the Essenes. If, if this is from that guy Paul, we're not going to read it. Hence, the reason for anonymity. I agree with Bollinger's point that the style is different because he's writing to an audience that essentially doesn't need to be told how to suck eggs. When he's writing to Gentiles, they don't know nothing. So he's got to write in a style that's accessible to the Greek mind. Here he's writing to Hebrews. The style would, of course, be different. The other question is, when was it written? Again, I'm going with Trim. After Yeshua died, there was a, a real chance that the movement he started would splinter and disintegrate. It was James the Righteous who basically kept things together. Again, I'm relying on Trim here, so they, I don't have any other source. The idea was that he was an extremely popular and charismatic guy, and he was able to hold the followers of the way together and in fact was able to increase the community. In other words, uh, he was so popular and charismatic that you know, people would come into the way and the way was growing until he was assassinated. And he was assassinated apparently by the temple hierarchy and at that point the way, which we call Christianity, was in real danger of fragmenting 
and coming apart. The idea here is that Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome with the idea of bucking up the Jewish community and keeping them focused on who the Messiah is. So let's start back at verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, so he's starting right off, and he is hitting them right between the eyes and saying, this guy, Yeshua, is not an angel. Going back to Trim's scholarship, his comment is that the Ebionites and the Essenes had an extremely well-developed angelology. That's a word. If, if you read some Jewish sources, you find that they are angels little, littered all over it, and they got names. I mean, you got Sandal Pond, and you've got lots of them, and I'm not an expert in it, but the number of angels that we see in the Tanakh and the New Testament is very pale compared to the number you would find in Jewish writings. We see basically Gabriel and Michael. That, that's it. In other Jewish writings, there's whole lots of them. And apparently the Essenes or the Ebionites spent an inordinate amount of time studying that. So one of the things that he is doing up front is he is clearly differentiating this man Yeshua from angels. Their theology would have been this was an angel, a messenger from God who is not God, is not the Son of God, is simply someone that God used either as an angel or as a prophet. So what the writer here is doing is in this first paragraph staking out the position that Yeshua is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God in his nature, and he's the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a pretty definitive, this man is God. And then he says, he is much superior to the angels. All right, now we're going to get to, to some Old Testament or Tanakh references that the writer is going to assert are messianic. So in verse 5, this is now in defense of his statement that Yeshua is greater than the angels. So, for to which angel did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And that's a quote from Psalm 2. Just take a, a quick waltz over there. Basically, you have a conversation in three voices here. So you have the Holy Spirit or the narrator, and then you have God speaking in quotation, and then finally you have the Son speaking, and then back to the narrator. So why do the nations rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, humanity is still in rebellion. 
a la the Tower of Babel. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the Tower of Babel. Basically, to get God out of the world. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, okay, now this is God speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, now we switch voices again, and now we have the Son, the Messiah. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then in verse 10, we go back to the narrator, or what I would call the Holy Spirit. So you have God, and then the Son of God, quoting God. The voice in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, so now the voice is the Son of God. And what the Father said to the Son is, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. What the writer of Hebrews is asserting is that is a messianic psalm, with which I agree. So we're still in verse 5 in Hebrews. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is again a quote from Psalm 89, and also from 2 Samuel 7.14. And this is of David, and it's interesting. So go to Psalm 89.26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on the earth. Now this is clearly talking of David, but it's looking deeper than David ever went, if you will. And so, again, the idea here is this is a messianic psalm in addition to referring to the King David. And now back to Hebrews verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that is from Deuteronomy 32, 43, but you will not find it in your Bible. And the reason for that is it's from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint reads differently than Deuteronomy 32.43, which is, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. The Septuagint is, Let all gods' angels worship him. So, bow down to him, all gods, becomes, Let all gods' angels worship him. That's the difference in the Septuagint as opposed to the Masoretic text. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And that, again, is from Psalm 104.4. And he's talking about angels there. And then he says, but of the Son, he says, quoting from Psalm 45, 6 and 7, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Throne, going to Psalm 45, 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This, by the way, is Song of the Sons of Korah. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this is also a messianic psalm. The point he's making is 
if you accept these as messianic psalms, then what's being spoken of here is not an angel. That's the point of this whole series of references is that the man Yeshua is not an angel. And then verse 10 in Hebrews, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. He's talking about you, Lord, being the Messiah. And we're talking about a messianic psalm. And that's 102 verses 25 and 27. And then verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And that's cited from Psalm 110. Verse 14, Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Psalm 110 is going to figure very prominently in the book of Hebrews. We're going to go into a whole long riff where he's going to deconstruct Psalm 110 and make the argument that Yeshua is, in fact, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is what the subject of Psalm 110 is. Now, he's also going to go into a riff defending the fact that Psalm 45 is, in fact, a messianic psalm. We'll get to that in a minute. So, the first thing he's done then in chapter 1 is he has asserted that Yeshua is God, is the Son of God, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's also asserted that Yeshua is not, was not, and will not be an angel. He is something completely different. And then in addition, he's also going to go into the priesthood business as we go on. But that's sort of staking out what the subject of the letter is, if you will. One of the points that Trim makes is this extensive differentiation of Yeshua from angels would have been specific to the Ebionites and the Essenes. They're the ones that have this extensive angelology. Hence, that's one of the reasons he thinks that that was the intended audience. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is the message declared by angels which has proven reliable? Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So what is the message declared by angels the transgression of which receives a retribution. I would say it's the Torah. The comment was from Acts 7.53. This is Peter as he is standing there slapping the Jews around after the giving of the Holy Spirit. Pick it up in Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There he is talking about Torah. The idea then that the message declared by angels in Hebrews proving to be reliable and transgression of which receives retribution, I will suggest to you is the Torah. The point he's making here is that the Torah, which was given to you by a mere messenger, and you regard as authoritative and binding, how much more then should the word of the Son of God and God himself bind you? That's the argument he's making. You got the Torah, which you revere and you obey from angels. Well, how much more authoritative then are the words that came out of the mouth of God walking on the earth? Verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And of course, that's a quote from Psalm 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Yeshua, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What he's saying is you've got sort of three orders of being. You've got the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. Then you've got created angels. Then you've got humanity. For a time, the Messiah walked as one of us, being lower than the angels. Everything is in subjection to him. However, we don't see that. We don't see that today. Everything is not in subjection to him. The point he's making is, this is the Son of God, this is God himself, and everything is in subjection to him, but it's not. So the only way that that's going to work and the argument he will make later is if there is going to be a second advent. Because, as I say, look around. This place isn't being run by the Messiah. The other point he's making is Yeshua has been crowned with glory and honor because he became one of us and suffered death for everyone. Because he was obedient and did that, he has been crowned with glory and honor. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Who is he for whom and by whom all things exist? The Father. So he's saying that it is fitting for he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God makes the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. So the founder of salvation has to be Yeshua. 
Just doing grammar here, not doing anything weird. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What is that one source? God. So he who sanctifies, who's that? Yeshua. And those who are sanctified, us, all have one source, God. And then that is why he, Yeshua, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And that's from Psalm 22, 2. And again, I will put my trust in him. And that is cited from Psalm 18, 2, Isaiah 8, 17, and 12, 2. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And that is from Isaiah 8.18. The idea here is the purpose of Yeshua's incarnation and suffering and death was to bring his brothers, us, to salvation. And so what he's doing in verse 12 and 13, where he's quoting from these Psalms, is he is demonstrating that Yeshua regards us as brothers. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. A couple of things. By his incarnation and his death, he destroys the one who has the power of death, which is to say, Satan. And the purpose of destroying Satan is to deliver all those who live in fear of death, and because they are afraid of death, they walk in slavery to Satan. There's two aspects to it. Aspect number one is, if this is all there is, and Satan can kill you, then you're afraid. Conversely, if you don't believe that this is all there is, death can still be terrifying if you don't know what happens afterwards. And you don't have anyone you can trust. Because if you look at the world, it isn't obvious that the world is a good place. What makes you think it gets any better when you die? Intelligence guided by experience would say, gee, this place is a mess. And if I'm not, in, in fact, that's one of the tenets of some Eastern religions, is get to the point where you get off the wheel and you quit coming back. Onward to verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What he's doing is sort of walking you through the incarnation. Why did this happen? Why did God become flesh? The first reason that he has articulated is so that he would be a brother to us. And it says elsewhere in the scriptures that he gave us the power to be children of God. If 
he is a child of God, the Son of God, and we are children of God, then reflexively we are brothers. Now the second point he's making here is by becoming one of us and walking on the earth for some 33 years, he came to a visceral understanding of what it is that we deal with. In other words, you can look at somebody out there and think that you understand what they're going through, but when you actually go through it, you get a whole different perspective. What the writer here is saying is, part of the reason why he came is so that he would understand the pressures and the fears and all the things that we're subject to, so that when he then judges us, he will be able to judge us in mercy from a position of understanding. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Again, the idea here is, having been tempted himself, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why the temptations are such a big part of the Gospels, you know, where he, where he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, again, because he has been subject to the same temptations we are subject to, he is able to judge us in compassion. Compassion means to feel together. You know, when you're compassionate, you feel together with someone. So he is able to be compassionate because he can feel what we feel. As much as lots of people like logic, we are beings that are also sentimental. In other words, we are, we are very much ruled by our feelings. I can give you all the reasons in the world why you should or shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, but I want to do A, B, and C. There's an emotion attached to that. This is what I actually want to do. I mean, you can give me all these good reasons why I can do this other thing, but this is what I really want to do. And it doesn't matter how good your reasons are. If this is what I really want to do, I'll find a way to do it. When I really want to do something, I'll find a way to do it. And, and, and I will kick my high-powered mind right into gear, and I will find really good logical reasons why it's a good thing. So the idea of Yeshua living through the same things we live through, he then has what I would call a visceral understanding of why it is we do what we do. And in judging us then, he judges us from the perspective of being one of us and not being outside and what I would call the aspect of pure justice. Would somebody like to close in prayer?